I invite you this morning to open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. As you're turning there, I want to take some of you who are a bit older down memory lane. Perhaps some of you remember the old television commercials for parquet margarine. Maybe some of you, how many of you remember that? How many of you are old enough? Okay, so for some of you kids, I want to, want to help you with this. The commercial would go something like this. Is this actor would be seated on the table and uh, would, would have his, his margarine, his parquet margarine there, would have a, a piece of bread and his butter knife in hand and would be about to butter his, his bread and then the parquet margarine um, tub would become like a mouth and, and out of it would say what? Everyone together. No, 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 he said Butter. And uh, the, the actor would be startled and say, because normally food doesn't talk to you very much, right? And, and here's this talking tub of, of margarine. And uh, after he gains the composure, he says, no, margarine. And then the, the parquet would say what? Butter, butter. Okay, let's, say it, let's say it, just butter. Ready? One, two, three, butter. He'd say, margarine. And the parquet would say, butter. And, and then eventually he would take his, his uh, knife or maybe his finger and he'd lick it and he'd say, Mmm, butter! And which response the margarine would say? Okay, look at all of you. Remember that. Now, here's the amazing thing. Okay, is that that was like 30 years ago. 20 years ago. Is that amazing? That without question, you all... I've not seen a, a butter parquet commercial for a long time. I mean, maybe, maybe they filtered it through. But it's been a, been a long time since I've seen it, but we all, all know it. And, and the, the issue here with uh, parquet margarine is that the company spent many, many, many dollars to convince you that parquet is, margarine is better than butter. The issue is what's better? Butter, of course, we know is, tends to be worse for you because it has the animal saturated fats. Margarine is more from plants. There's this debate, but... But they want you to think that margarine is better than butter, even. And here's my aim as well. So the writer of the book of Hebrews has been seeking time after time after time to convince us that Jesus is better. Jesus is parquet, if you will. He's better than anything of the Old Testament. And, 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 and I tell you that illustration there because I've got another agenda. I would like to see us, all of us, 30 years from now, be able to gather together. You know, we'll all be scattered. We'll all be different places. Some of you have passed away. Some of you kids will grow up. I'll, I'll be a grandpa by that time, hopefully, kids. Uh, and uh, we'll all, but if we would all gather back into one place, and uh, for some reason I would get up and I would say, okay, the book of Hebrews, what's it about? It is about this. Jesus is better. So press on, right? And I just want to drill that into you so that wherever you are, 30 years from now, just as you know the parquet commercials, that you would know Hebrews is all about Jesus is better. Because that's the message of the book of Hebrews. Well, during my trip, during, due to Easter and my trip to California last week, it's been three weeks since we've been in the book of Hebrews, and I thought it would be good for us just to catch up, ramp up to Hebrews 7 where we are, but by kind of a quick review about what Hebrews is about. It's going to be really quick, all right? First of all, Jesus is better than the prophets. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 says, God, long ago, to the fathers, in the prophets, in many portions, in many ways, spoke to us. But in these last days, spoken to us in His Son. In other words, the prophets were many different people, many different ways, many different styles, it was on paper, but now God has spoken to us in a real living person, Jesus Christ. Jesus is better than the prophets. Jesus also is better than the angels. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 4, it says that Jesus has become as much better than the angels as He has inherited a more excellent name than they. And that's the whole argument through chapter 2. And then in chapter 3, the argument is Jesus is better than Moses. Hebrews 3, 3. Jesus has been worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. That Jesus has more glory than Moses. Jesus has more glory than Joshua. Joshua sought to give the people rest, but it says in chapter 4, verse 8, that if Joshua would have given them this true, genuine, perfect rest, there would not have been another day of rest spoken of after that. 
Jesus is better than the high priest. That's what all of chapter 5 is about. You can see it there, verse 9, of Jesus having been made perfect, He became to all those who obey Him the source of eternal salvation, whereas the high priests weren't perfect, weren't the source of eternal salvation, but Jesus is. Jesus is better than Melchizedek. He is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, as chapter 6, verse 20 says. And as then chapter 7 begins, he argues that Jesus is better than, well, Melchizedek is better than Abraham. And as Jesus is better than Melchizedek, Jesus is better than him also. But better than Abraham comes in chapter 7, verse 6, particularly. It says, without any dispute, the lesser Abraham is blessed by the greater Melchizedek. And Abraham, who through Levi received tithes, paid tithes, received tithes, actually he paid tithes to Melchizedek. And Jesus is even better than both of these men. And last time we looked at chapter 7, verse 11 and following. just speaks about how Jesus has a better priesthood is the theme. Verse 11, Jesus' priesthood is a perfect priesthood. The argument verse 11 says that if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, For on the base of it, the people received the law. What further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not to be designated according to the order of Aaron? In other words, the the Levitical priests weren't perfect. But Jesus did bring in a perfect priesthood. And then beginning in verse 13, we see that Jesus is a a royal priesthood. He is a king priest. He was from the line of Judah. None of the Levites were kings. They couldn't be. Because kings came from the line of Judah. But we see in chapter 7, verse 13, that the one concerning these things are spoken belongs to the tribe of Judah. Jesus is a king priest that makes him better. Jesus also is a worthy priesthood. In other words, Jesus didn't become a priest because he was a member of the good old boys club. Jesus became a priest because his life was indestructible. It was perfect. There's no tearing down his life at all. As we approach verse 18 here this morning, the theme continues the same. It is still trying to show and demonstrate that Jesus is a better priesthood. So my message is appropriately titled this morning, A Better Priesthood, Part 2. Last time, three weeks ago, was Part 1. And as you look at this passage, it really just unfolds itself. The outline does. Because there are three contrasts here in verses 18 through 25 that you should be able to see, you should be able to pick up on them. And in fact, the contrasts in, in some translations, like New American Standard, are really, really well defined for you. It says, on the one hand, this, but on the other hand, this. On the one hand, this, but on the other hand, this. On the one hand, this, on the other hand. And so you just see the three contrasts form my three points this morning. It's really quite easy. And, and, and just, you know, my aim each week as I, I preach to you all and teach the Bible, I want you to go home not saying, wow, that was a good message because, wow, he just, I never saw that before. And how, I don't know how, but it was really good. No, what I want you, I want you to go home and say, wow, that was a really good message because he just said what the Bible said. I just see it flowing right from here. And so, as you go home today, as you think about the three points that I have, I want you to see they just flow right from the text. They're all part of these on the one hand, on the other hand. In the Greek, it's a mende clause. Men means on one hand, and de means like on the other hand. And it's three times here, though it's translated in my Bible twice. As I read this text, I will translate it using the, the whole mende clause, the, on the one hand, on the other hand, so you'll catch it. Okay, so as I read through this, kids, particularly listen for the three contrasts. Verse 18, For on the one hand... There is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And it is much as not without an oath. For they indeed, and it's here in the Greek text, on the one hand became priests without an oath. But he, on the other hand, with an oath, through the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. The former priests on the one hand existed in greater numbers because they were presented by death from continuing. But Jesus on the other hand 
because He continues forever, holds His priesthood permanently. Therefore, He is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Well, I hope you saw the contrast. I tried to make it painfully clear. Let's look at the first one. The priesthood of Jesus is better because His hope is better. You see it there in verse 19. In Jesus Christ, there is a bringing in of a better hope. And the contrast here is between the hope of the law and the hope of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And by comparison, when you put those two things up and you compare the hope of the law and the hope of Christ, there's really no comparison because Jesus has all the hope. In fact, you even see in verse 19 that it says, the law made nothing perfect. Of course, in Christ, we are made perfect. It says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, that by one offering, He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Law can't perfect, but Jesus can. At this point, I do want to pause and just say a word to you parents. I want you to understand this. It's my, my burden for all of you. Just realize that the law cannot perfect your children. Can't do it. Oh, you might lay down a law and expect your children to obey first time, every time with a happy heart, and they may have some outward conformity. They may reach a, a state of morality, if you will, but it's not going to make them perfect. The only thing that's going to make them perfect is Jesus. To have an alien righteousness that is not part of themselves, but is Jesus imputed to them. The only thing that's going to make them perfect is to be born again, to be changed and transformed by the power of the Gospel of Christ. And so I would encourage you, parents, press upon your children, not law, but press upon your children, Jesus. Call them to believe in Christ and know His transforming power, which then works itself out in many times in obeying and submitting to the law. Commend them to draw near to Him. I just want to read a little bit from this book. I, I think I've mentioned this book many times. Yvonne and I have read this, oh, I don't know, so over the past two months or so we finished it about a month ago or so, just I read to her before we go to bed. And this is our book. It's called Gospel Powered Parenting, How the Gospel Shapes and Transforms Parenting. And uh, he just says it like this. It is important, this is William Farley. He's a pastor of a church in um, Washington. It is important to note that the primary focus of Christian parenting is not morality. The primary focus of Christian parenting is not morality. Well-behaved children are not the ultimate end. Saving faith deeply rooted in the children's heart is the supreme goal of Christian parents. God saves the child who transfers all his trust from his own works to Christ and expresses that faith with repentance. Therefore, Christian parenting is all about the transfer of dad and mom's faith. Morality is important, but it follows faith. It does not produce it. In fact, moralism, the idea that we merit God's favor by being good, is the deadly enemy of Christian parenting. Moralism is the deadly enemy of Christian parenting. And too many times, churches are filled with good kids, but they're moral kids. It's deadly enemy to Christian parenting. Moralism trusts its own goodness, virtue, and principled intentions to get a not guilty verdict from God on the day of judgment. It's deceptive. A cloak of morality over an unregenerate heart can make it difficult to discern the child's true spiritual condition. But Paul rejects moralism. We hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of a law, Romans 3.28. And in Galatians he adds, we know that a person is not justified by works of a law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. We're not seeking to transfer morality. We're not looking just for well-behaved kids. We're looking for kids who've been changed by the gospel of grace. And then he goes on a couple pages later about different ways in which the gospel affects parents. I just want to mention some of them. He's got seven of them, which outlines the book. The gospel teaches Christian parents to fear God because of everything that God is, His, his, his wrath on sin. The glory and grace, just to fear Him, to really trust in Him. Because our kids, they'll grow up is only because God has done a work in our children. The Gospel motivates parents to lead by example. And by there, he's just talking about those who are humble and contrite of spirit and affectionate with their kids will make the big effect. The Gospel teaches and motivates parents to discipline their children because the Gospel shows the horrors of hell. 
And discipline comes not by way of, of punishment or retribution or anger. Discipline comes so as to teach children the awfulness of sin that they might turn to Christ. The Gospel motivates parents to lavish their children with love and affection. Isn't that what God has done with us? We love because He first loved us. And the Gospel is the solution for inadequate parents. You think about how many times you've messed up parenting? There's lots. Lots in our life. And the Gospel just says, I've messed up, I've messed up God, but you, I just trust you to cover it and help. And so I just encourage you, parents, to know the law isn't going to sanctify your kids. It's not going to. And just like the law here, the Old Testament made nothing perfect. Oh, there was much activity. There were feasts and festivals and sacrifices and priests and animals and blood and smoke and incense and buildings and altars and tables and laws of morality. Much good. But in the end, nothing was made perfect. In fact, the book of Hebrews even talks about how the law doesn't make anything perfect. Chapter 9, verse 9 says, Both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. They're just external things what the law is. Just, just food and drink and, and outward things until a better time comes. And then Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1 says, The law, since it's only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. The, the, the law isn't the way to be made perfect, but with Jesus Christ we are. In Jesus Christ we can stand before God with no spot or wrinkle. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Hebrews 10.10 10. Our sins are completely forgiven through the death of Christ. God remembers them no more and our hearts are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies are washed with pure water through the Gospel of Christ. Now the reason why the law never made anything perfect is because, it says there in verse 18, it is weak and useless. For the law, the former, there's a setting aside of former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. That that was set aside. The law was weak and useless. Now, we hear that today and we think, well, yeah, of course it was. You know, we, we, we kind of poo-poo and downplay the law. But you've got to understand how this was spoken in the original context. To the Jews, the law was everything. And many of these people were being argued. They're saying, oh, you've gone to this Jesus, but we've got the law. And look at how grand and glorious the law is. This is what we followed for generation after generation. Come here. And, and they, Jews, lifted up the law high. And for this writer to suppress it, was really pretty radical. In fact, that's what Stephen did when he sought to speak against the law a little bit in Acts chapter 6. He was accused about saying that Jesus will destroy this temple and alter the customs which Moses handed down and they did not like that and he died for making statements about that, about how great Jesus is and how the customs of Moses are altered. So you've got to hear this in the original context. When Moses gave the law, he then spoke to the people of Israel, said, Take to your heart all the words which I am warning you today, which you shall command your sons to observe carefully, even all the words of this law. For it is not an idle word for you. Indeed, it is your life. Deuteronomy 32, verse 46. The law was their life. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 119, I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. Right? You put God's, God's law here and the riches, he said, oh, the law is way more important. The psalmist says, your testimonies are wonderful. My soul observes them. I love your testimonies. In fact, Isaiah records this, the Lord was pleased for His righteousness sake to make the law great and glorious. So don't just, don't just take these statements lightly where it says the law was weak and useless. Because for the Jews, the law was really everything. So how can those statements be made? How can you hold those intentions? How can the law be weak and useless at the same time and yet still be great and glorious at the same time? Well, here's why. I think that you can think about the law as a baby. A baby's not bad in any way whatsoever. We value babies highly, even unborn babies. Babies give us great joy. And you think about it, what's characteristic of babies? They are weak and useless. Oh, they give us happiness. They're not, they're not totally useless. They give us joy. You know, rare is the mother that's holding the little baby without 
smile on the face. But in one regard, they are weak, not as in bad, but weak as in young and powerless. Babies need us to bring them their food. They need us to change their diapers. They need us to clothe them. They need us to put them to bed and to get them up because they're feeble and helpless. Well, that's what the law was like. It was feeble. It it had not grown up. And the law, by the way, was a permanent state of infanthood, if you will. It was weak and useless, never ultimately able to make perfect those who draw near. Rather, the Old Testament really prepares us for something greater. Paul said that, uh, that the law was a tutor to lead us to Christ. It was something they anticipated. Jesus said that the law prophesied of something better to come. Jesus said, Moses wrote about me prophesying. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, I, I read that earlier, it says the law is a shadow of good things to come. What, what's a shadow but a, a dark, two-dimensional representation of the real object? But the real object is Jesus Full color, three dimensions. And that conquers the shadow any day. But the shadow gives testimony to the existence and to the the benefit of something else which cast that shadow, and that was Jesus. The the law was to show us our sin and to prepare us for something greater. And, And even you get that sense here in verse 18 because it says, on the one hand, there's a setting aside of a former commandment. This word former, it's not that it's former and it's old and past. It's former in the sense that it was first in coming, but there is something going to be led in after that. In fact, that's the illusion also when he says in verse 19, on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope. This was the former thing which had to come first, but then there was this bringing in of the better, which is Jesus. Jesus is the better hope. You know, the law had a hope. It had a hope in everything that we could do is really what it was. When we sinned, we found an animal. We looked among all the animals and we said, okay, I think this one will be good enough. And we brought the animal to the priest. And, and we confessed our sins to the priest said, here, you take it. And then the priest, who's as weak as we are, took that animal and sacrificed it up and offered up a weak prayer to God and we hoped that God would forgive us. But Jesus Christ has a, a better hope. He gives us a hope, not in the things that we do, but He gives us a hope in Himself. The hope of Jesus is in all what He did. Because He found the animal to sacrifice. He sacrificed Himself, the Lamb. He was better than any other animal. And He brought Himself to the priest, if you will. He sacrificed Himself willingly. He said, no one takes my my life. I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay down and take up. And God has declared without question that Jesus is the one that God accepts as a sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, Jesus sat down at the right hand of God. He's seated there waiting for His enemies to made a footstool for His feet. And I'll just say, the hope that we have in Jesus far exceeds any hope that the law could ever give. Jesus is a better priesthood because His hope is better. Well, the priesthood of Jesus is better because an oath is better. And you can see that in verse 20, which introduces the subject. And inasmuch as this hope with Jesus is not without an oath. The second contrast. The first contrast was about hope. The law had no hope. Jesus is all hope. Now here's an oath. Okay, And it speaks about, here's the contrast with an oath. Verse 21. You could read it this way. I'm going to read it again. For they, on the one hand, indeed became priests without an oath. But he, on the other hand, with an oath, through the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. At this point, the writer is reflecting back upon the ordination um, services of the priests. And you can read about them in Leviticus 8 and Leviticus 9. It's, It's very interesting there about what took place. It's a remarkable story. The Lord told Moses, Take Aaron with his sons with him, and the garments, and the anointing oil, and the bowl of the sin offering, and the two rams, and the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble all the congregation at the doorway of the tent of meeting. It's a very public thing. So Moses takes Aaron, and his sons, and his clothes, and the oil, and an ox, and two rams, and the unleavened bread, and brings them all before all the people. And the first thing you need to do is you need to 
wash with water. And so Aaron and his sons were washed with water. And then he clothed them with this clothe, with the, the tunic and with the, the robe. He placed a breast piece on him and he placed upon his head a turban. And then he anointed him with oil, took some oil and, and poured it upon his head and it came down upon his beard and was anointing him for the priesthood. After these things, he brought forth the bull. And Aaron and his sons all put their hands on the head of the bull. Just picture this cow, alright? Big eyes, snorting, maybe ringing his nose, and they're putting their hands on him. And then Moses slits his throat, cuts him, and offers up the fat, uh, particularly upon the altar. And then after that, they bring one of the rams. And one of the rams come in, and the Aaron and his sons do the same thing. They place their hands upon the ram, upon the head of the ram. Not even on body, it says specifically, they put it on the head of the ram, and then Moses slits the throat, slaughters the bull, and takes the fat of the bull upon the altar and burns it up. In fact, the whole ram was offered up on the altar in that case. Then the other ram comes, brought before Aaron and his sons, they laid their hand upon this ram. Moses again slaughters this ram, and this time he takes some of the, the blood. And, and he, this is kind of funny, I don't fully understand. He takes some of the blood and puts it on Aaron's right ear. And then he puts it on his thumb. And do you guys remember where, where else the other put, party put it on? Put it on his big toe of his right foot. He did that for Aaron and he did that with the sons. Now, I, was, that, I don't know what exactly that's about, but it's somewhat symbolic about them being consecrated as priests. And then Moses burned the ram upon the altar. As this uh, flesh is burning up, Moses then takes some of the burning flesh right off the altar. And I assume that it's smoking and he comes to Aaron and his sons and takes this and says, give me some of that unleavened bread, puts it on top of the unleavened bread, gives it back to them. It's called a wave offering. I assume they're kind of waving this smoke before the Lord. And then Moses takes these things back, puts them on the altar and burns them up. You know, perhaps just symbolic, like everything they have is what I have is yours, God. It's all given up. And then finally Moses took some of the anointing oil and some of the blood on the altar and sprinkled it on Aaron, on his garments and his sons. So you think about this blood, the garments, oil, all mixed together. Aaron and his sons and consecrate Aaron, his garments, his sons, and the garments of his sons with him. And then Aaron and his sons stayed in the tent of meeting for seven days. This is not just a one afternoon deal. It was seven days and seven nights they stayed in the tent of meeting. And after that, the congregation assembled again and they offered a calf and a lamb and an ox and a ram as a burnt offering before the Lord. And when they finally done this, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the portions of the fat upon the altar. This is an awesome sight. And the people fell down on their faces and they shouted, Great, great ordination. That's everything God said. But it's missing something. You know what's missing? What's it missing? What's it, what, what is it missing? A what? No. Was it missing that? It's good. It's a what? Right, provision for sin, yeah, perhaps. It's missing an oath. It's a key point here. It's missing an oath. God said to do this, and it all took place, but it was missing an oath. This pattern was followed not only by Aaron, but his sons, his sons after him, his sons after him, sons after him. He's got everything there. To be sure, they followed God's instructions. God affirmed the process here, but God made no oath at this time or at any other time about the priesthood here. And Eugene Peterson writes in his translation of the Bible, The Message, he says, The old priesthood of Aaron perpetuate itself automatically father to son without explicit confirmation by God. But Jesus is different than the Old Testament priests. The Lord made no oath with them, but He made an oath with Jesus, saying in verse 21, The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind, you are a priest forever. Or as Eugene Peterson says, but then God intervened and called this new permanent priesthood into being with the added promise. God gave His Word. He won't take it back. You're the permanent priest. Again, quoting from Psalm 110, verse 4, where He's been expositing Psalm 110, all of chapter 7. 
And he picks up this first phrase. We've not seen this phrase before. We've seen this fact that he's a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek in chapter 6, verse 20. We see that also in chapter 7, verse 17. And we see just a little bit quote of it. But he steps back a little bit and catches all of verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. God decreed the priesthood of Jesus and that settled it. Unlike any of the priests of the Old Testament. When Nadab and Abihu who, by the way, were sanctified and ordained for this office of the ministry, perhaps even their first time into the altar to offer altar and incense to the Lord, offered a strange fire before the Lord, just as the fire came down and consumed the, the sacrifice of the altar at the ordination of Aaron and his son, so also fire came down from heaven and consumed Nadab and Abihu for offering the fire in the wrong way. God had made no oath about them that they were going to be priests forever. But if God had made an oath to Nadab and Abihu that that their priesthood is forever, even how badly they did it, they would not have been consumed like He did. Because that's the nature of an oath. When God swears it, it will come to pass. Because it says in Hebrews 6.18, it's impossible for God to lie. And when God makes this oath about Jesus being a priest forever, it's going to take place. And Jesus is a priest forever. And the point here, verse 22, is this, that so much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. He's become a guarantee because God has promised with an oath. You know, we like guarantees in this life, don't we? We have an electronic keyboard at our house. And um, this is a, a pedal, the electronic keyboard. In fact, we have one underneath here. It looks a little bit different. <laughs> I'm glad it looks a little bit different because this is the second of these uh, sustain pedals that we have. Uh, the first one had some problems. I've unscrewed this and did some soldering and tried to fix it. And the first one also had some problems here where there's some electrical tape trying to catch it because it was, it was all crimped around and bent. But we bought the first one figuring out oh, we'll maybe care for this one a little bit more. Well, this is the second one we had and it, it still went bad as well. And so this past week I went into Guitar Center with SR and and I talked about, hey, I'm wondering if you have any sustain pedal. I've bought two of them here, and uh, they've not worked. wondering if there's new technology you have or something. I've soldered them. They've not worked. And uh, the first guy I talked to said this. said, oh, did you buy the protection guarantee? Like, no, I didn't buy the protection guarantee. Because I never buy the protection guarantee, because it's like more in- insurance than what it is. And I can, I can sink the $20 in case it gets hurt. I can fix it I, normally. But this one... It's got something wrong with the button. Dirk can fix it, I'm sure. We'll give it to him. I, I, I can't. And so I said, do you have any different technology? He said, well, why don't you go back there? And so I explained the same things. I, my same sob story to the other person back in Guitar Center where the, these things are. And I said, yeah, I've had several sustained pedals and, and both of them are broken and I've tried to solder them and I couldn't quite get them to fix Do you have a different technology that you know, maybe it's a different kind of pedal that will work better? And, and he said, well, did you buy the protection guarantee that allow you to get a free one? I said, no, I didn't do that. And then he showed me the pedals, and there was one that's a little bit different. It's probably like that one right there, which they're selling now probably in preference to this kind of model, which doesn't work very well. But it's four extra dollars. I got a guarantee. And that's what God has done with Jesus in some sense, is that Jesus, with this oath, has become a guarantee that a better priest is not going to come along. That Jesus is the priest forever. He's become the guarantee of a better covenant. Now this better covenant is really going to be expounded in chapter 8. It's really the new covenant that Jeremiah prophesied that came to pass and we're just going to put that on the table because we're going to see it in chapter 8. It's going to touch upon in chapter 9, verse 15 a little bit as well, but we'll, we'll push it off there but say it's going to be fabulous. We speak and think about the the new covenant that God promised through Jeremiah and Ezekiel. But I want you now to notice the oath that God made. The Lord has sworn, will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. And in the next verses, verse 23, 24, and 25, he picks up on this phrase forever, which forms the basis of his contrast. Verse 23 speaks about why the priesthood is better. My third point, because forever is better. Not only has he got a better Hope, not only is the oath better, but also forever is better. Verse 23 says this, The former priests on the one hand existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. 
But Jesus, on the other hand, because He continues forever, holds His priesthood permanently. And the obvious point here is that the Levitical priests were many because they died. A priest, okay, reality check here, a priest can only be a priest as long as he lives. (laughs) You can't have a dead priest. Because you have to have someone to offer up your sacrifice for you. And as they kept dying off, they needed to be replaced. Josephus, the Jewish historian, um, has a list in his Antiquities, right near the end of it. And he describes the number of priests that they had. And he said that from the time of the ordination of Aaron until the time of A.D. 70, when Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple was, was destroyed, so there's no more sacrifice after that, he counted 83 high priests. The Talmud has some more than that. Maybe they're just counting priests as well, but 83 high priests from that time. And there were so many of them, and and, and Josephus even names many of them. He doesn't name all 83, but names many of them. And the reason why there are so many is because of the shortness of life. In, In Israel, there were 20 kings in Israel. And in Judah, how many kings were there? Do they know this yet? Some of the kids in your class? 19 kids. In 19 kings. Tech kids. There are a little more kids in that. But there are 19 kings in Judah, in the southern country, because they kept dying off. We've had more than 40 presidents in the United States, not only because of term limits, but also because our presidents die off. And we only have four or five alive at this moment. That's the nature it is. Every man is expendable because every man is mortal. And that's the point of verse 23. And the contrast comes in verse 24 that Jesus, because He continues forever, holds His priesthood permanently. His priesthood was of the order of Melchizedek, which is a forever type of priesthood. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 3. Melchizedek, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, He remains a priest perpetually. There's a perpetual priesthood that Melchizedek has and Jesus being better because he was first in that regard holds his priesthood permanently Jesus Christ gave himself as a sacrifice and he died but he rose after three days that we celebrated Easter a few weeks ago and he rose to hold his priesthood permanently he is alive and obviously because his priesthood is a forever priesthood it is a better priesthood nobody will ever come to Jesus tap him on the shoulder and say um um, excuse me, Jesus, um, your, your time as a priest is up. Um, you can step aside. I'm going to take your priesthood now. Nobody will succeed Jesus. He holds his position forever. Okay, so at this point you say, so what? So there's been a lot of theology, a lot of interesting things. You know, we've talked about how the hope is better, lots of nice thoughts about the law. We've talked about the oath and how, how the oath is better. I'm not sure really you came in today, though, thinking, well, hmm... The Old Testament priest didn't have an oath. Or even here, if Jesus is forever, I'm not sure you really thought about that. You say, so what? Well, verse 25 is a so what. And if we bring things to a close, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really linger here for a bit. There's, there's much to teach us here in our text this morning. And, um, and in fact, I, I might next week even just elaborate on verse 25 as well. But we'll just start this morning. Verse 25, therefore, it's like the conclusion. This is the application to our text. Therefore, He is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. This is the point of the passage. We have a better priesthood who can save forever. His name is Jesus Christ He's a perfect priest. He's a royal priest. He's a worthy priest. He has a better hope. He's been with an oath. And He is forever. He's able to bring us to God. And it shows you the greatness here of Jesus in the sense that He is a, a forever priest. Listen, Jesus is the only way you'll come to God. Jesus Himself said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Me. You can picture God as maybe a funnel. And you've got to go, go through Jesus in order to see the glory of God. Paul affirmed it. There's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. You've God up there. The only way to get to God is through Jesus. Peter said, there's no other name under heaven that's been given by among men by which we must be saved. 
Jesus is the only way that will be saved the Father. And this verse, verse, seven, verse 25, is a matter of salvation. Look at verse 25. It says, Jesus is able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him. The NIV says that Jesus is able to save completely. The ESV, King James, New King James, I'll say Jesus is able to save to the uttermost. It, it just speaks there about not just even merely saving forever, but saving perfectly forever. Completely is how Jesus can save us. On the one hand, I say this is a call of God upon all of you who don't believe. You need to be saved this morning. And the way to be saved is through Jesus who can save you forever. One of the features of the book of Hebrews is that it has all these warning sections. Jesus is better. But but in the midst here, there are five warning sections. We've seen three of them already in chapter 2, in chapter 3 and 4, and in chapter 6. And all of them are telling us, since Jesus is better, let's press on. Don't drift and neglect so great a salvation. Don't harden your hearts and fall away from the living God. Like, don't fall away. Only be lost forever. And with each of these warnings, the call is to heed the salvation that God has provided. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3. We won't. Hebrews 3, verse 12. Take care, brethren, there not be in any one of you an evil, hard, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. That calls you to come and, and be with Jesus who is able to save forever. And how are you saved forever? It's through Jesus. But, but how do you think we'll ever heed the warnings? It's only through the power of Jesus. That's why we need to seek Him continually. Believe in Him. Draw near to Him, as the text says. But listen, verse 25 isn't written primarily as a warning to unbelievers. Rather, it's written to believers as a comfort. Jesus is able to save forever. Do you need saving today? Yes, you need saving today. All of us need saving today. Paul spoke about the message of the Gospel. He says it's foolishness to the unbelieving, but then he says, but to us who are being saved... It is the power of God. Never think of salvation merely as an old one-time event. Oh, that's when I was saved. No, think about it. I was saved and I'm continually being saved. I need to be saved forever. And Jesus needs to continue to keep me. And the call here is that we need to draw near to Jesus since He always lives to make intercession for us. Think about that, alright? This is going to blow your mind if you kind of grasp this. Jesus lives to make intercession for everyone who draws near to God through Him. How many people is that? Like five, maybe? No? Thousands? Millions. Millions of people right now coming, drawing near to Jesus, and Jesus hearing all these requests, and and He's praying to God, for all of us. That'll blow you away too. The Son prays to the Father for us. This word making intercession is like the appeal process of the law. At least that's how it's used in Acts 25 verse 24 about appealing. And, and Jesus appeals for us. And, and that'll give you great comfort in your life. I know that it comforted John Newton this is his, um, his autobiography. It's a great little read. Out of the Depths. John Newton, former slave trader, came to know Christ, wrote Amazing Grace, was a faithful pastor for many years. He had just become a Christian in recent days. Um, he was still on a ship. He'd seen one of his friends who he led into infidelity. Then John Newton, having embraced Christ, then tried to persuade him back, but he continued in infidelity. This friend got a fever and died. And a little bit later, John Newton got a fever and was heading in that direction. And in fact, even he says that after ten days, I I got better to the astonishment of all the people around me. They all figured he was dead. 
with the fever. But he said this, in the midst of his, of his fever, as he's thinking about his own death, and he's thinking about his conversion, and how he's just barely trusted Christ after being so wicked, he said this, My trust, though weak in degree, was fixed upon the blood and righteousness of Jesus. The words, He is able to save to the uttermost, gave me great relief. That's what he said. The words, He is able to save to the uttermost, gave me great relief. And then he started thinking about that Jesus prays for me, how can this be? He said, I was for a while troubled with the very singular thought whether it was a temptation or fever disordered my faculties, I cannot say. I seemed not so much afraid of wrath and punishment because he'd trusted in the blood of Christ or of being lost and over... But I, I seem to be troubled, be afraid of being lost and overlooked amid the myriads continually entering the unseen world. What is my soul, thought I, among an innumerable multitude... Perhaps the Lord would take no notice of me. I was perplexed thus for some time, but at last a text of Scripture occurred to my mind and put an end to the doubt. The Lord knoweth them that are His. He's finding comfort in the fact that Jesus is always living to make intercession for Him, even in a time of trial and distress. And I just hope that the book of Hebrews has that same effect upon you as you think about this. Just realize that Jesus is able to say, we just need to draw near to Him. Because He is praying for us. How about this? Have you ever wondered what sorts of prayers Jesus prays? What's He praying? Well, He might be praying things like this. Father, I pray for Steve at this moment. I see the temptation that he's facing. And Father, I pray You'd strengthen him in this time so that he might trust in Your power to live a pure life. I think he prays prayers like that for sanctification. He might be praying like this. I, Father, I pray for Steve at this moment. He, he sinned greatly and he knows it. He feels bad about it. But I would pray that you show him the, the merits of my blood and lead him away from depression and, and keep him from thinking that he needs to be really sorrowful about his sin in order somehow to, to, to make you be appeased for his sin because it was so bad and he feels so bad, but, but show him the merits of my blood. Lift him out of depression. God, I pray for that. That's Jesus advocating his blood to the Father for us, right? Or we might be praying, Father, I pray for Steve at this moment. You, you've brought him into this trial and he's sick. And, and his sickness, though, that you've brought is so he wouldn't trust in himself. Father, I pray you might help him to learn this lesson quickly so that the sickness would pass. Or he might be praying this, Father, I pray for Steve at this moment. As you know, things are going well for him. His job's going well, his family's strong, financial investments are doing well, things are booming, but he's in danger now, God. He's in danger of pride, and so I pray that you'd humble him. I, I pray that you'd bring some difficult things in his life so his heart won't stray from you. I think Jesus prays prayers like that. Or he might be praying, Father, I pray for Steve at this moment. He's in conflict with his friend and it's really tearing him up. And, and I pray you'd strengthen him to seek humility and grace and kindness with his friend and secure him in, in our love for him and not in his acceptance from others. I think he prays for that because he desires unity among the brothers. He might be praying this. Father, I pray for Steve at this moment. He has the opportunity to share the Gospel with his neighbors. They're, they're talking, oh Father, right now about their yard and their families. And I pray You'd transition things to spiritual matters. God, may You glorify Yourself by prompting Him to speak forth of My work on the cross. And surely that will glorify You and me. I think He prays things for that because He wants us to see His glory. Or he might be praying, Father, I pray for Steve at this moment. He's struggling to get out of bed. He snoozed three times already. And, and help him to see how much he needs us. So strengthen him to get out of bed so he can spend time with us as an act of dependence. And he might draw near. Help him get up. I think he prays for that. 
You might be praying this, I pray for Steve at this moment. It seems like he's become very busy in the affairs of life and has lost sight of my glory. Show him my glory. Well, I think these are the kind of things that Jesus prays for us. And it says that he does that continually. In fact, it says he always lives. You get the sense here that this is pretty much his full-time job. What is Jesus' job right now? He's a priest. I'm not sure we think about that very much. Jesus is a priest right now who always is living to pray for us who believe and who draw near to Him. In fact, I read in the Scripture reading the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And many of these things that I I just said that probably Jesus prays this way, taken even right from that prayer. Remember, Jesus says, I, I, I want my disciples to be sanctified in truth. I want my disciples to be one, that there might be unity among the brethren. I want my, my name to go out, that, that they've believed and that they may that spread that to others. I, I want them to have joy in me and, and delight, and, and I want them to see my glory, and I want them to love one another. That's what Jesus prayed there. I'm thinking in my heart about just taking a week off of Hebrews and just saying, Let, let's focus on the priestly role of Jesus, John 17. Just kind of go through that in a quick way, how he prays for himself, he prays for his disciples, and he prays for us. These are the kind of things that Jesus prays. Now, before I close, I want to ask you one more question. For who is Jesus praying? It's pretty clear there. He's praying for those who draw near to God through him. And I just ask, is that you? Are you drawing near to God through Jesus? Because if you're not, He might not be praying for you. But He prays for those who draw near. And what does drawing near mean? But just, just to pray and commune with God. It means to pray, yeah, specific times for sure, but just even throughout the day, just drawing near to God, thinking about God, meditating upon Him, praying with Him, having conversation with Him, communing with Him. That's what it means. This is a thrust of the text. It says back in 19, the phrase I skipped. You may have noticed it there, but I skipped it. This better hope through which we draw near to God. And now here we're called to to draw near to God through this hope of the Gospel. And the hope which we draw near isn't the hope of the demands of a law. God doesn't say, draw near to me because it's right. He doesn't demand it. He says, draw near because you have a sympathetic Savior who's ready and willing and able to help you. And he said that on a number of occasions here in Hebrews already. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. The earthly life of Jesus gives Jesus a credibility that he can help us in our temptation because he himself was tempted as well. Jesus prays for us not as some disinterested party. He doesn't pray for us as someone who doesn't understand the difficulties of life. On the contrary, Jesus was tempted in His suffering. He knows what it's like to face poverty. He knows what it's like to face difficulty. He knows what it's like to face rejection. And one of the things I argue when I preached on Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18, perhaps you remember that, I just went to the book of Luke. And we just looked at all the different ways that Jesus was tempted. And I just, and I just begun to show the ways that Jesus was tempted and said, whatever temptation you're going through, whatever struggles and difficulties, Jesus can help you in that. He's ready and willing to come to help. Also, it was mentioned again in chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Here comes in verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, and yet without sin. Therefore, let us, there it is again, draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Because He can say, been there, done that. And he had one more thing. Been there, done that, conquered it. He did it. 
And He can come and help us and show us the way. He's able to sympathize with us. And so I just say, church family, draw near to our sympathetic Savior. Draw near to our passionate priest. The thrust of the text here isn't, isn't come to me for help. And if you come to me, I'm just going to say, go to God. God's the only one that can help you. I love here, though, how God's not calling us to draw near because it's the right thing to do. They're calling, this text here is calling us to draw near because that's where we'll find help. Grace and mercy awaits us. We just need to draw near. You want grace and mercy? Just draw near to God. These verses are, are like the call of the park. It says, hey, you over there, you look to be so busy and encumbered with life. Why don't you come have a picnic in the park and enjoy yourself? Come here, you'll find rest and mercy and solace. It's a, it's a call to vacation. The cabin at the lake says, oh, you're so busy and so worn down. Why don't you come to the lake? Why don't you come here where you'll find rest and help for your souls? It's the call of the Sabbath. It says, oh, you've been swamped for six days. Take the seventh day and just rest and trust in me. As we think about Jesus is better, it's not just better externally. He is better in the sense that He is more attractive and more desirous and God is calling us by our own desires and heart to go where help can be found. And I just encourage you, church family, to pray and draw near to Christ who ever lives to make intercession for us. So let's pray one last time here this morning. Oh, Lord Jesus, what an awesome thought it is that even now you are praying for us as we are drawing near to you. Oh, what, what prayers are being prayed? We don't know. And even as Paul said in Romans chapter 8, when we don't know how to pray, the Spirit himself intercedes for us with... Um, words how to pray. And I would pray, Lord, in the confusions of life and in the the difficulties we face and the temptations and the sorrows in the struggles and the hardships and even in the successes and the glories and the happiness, I pray we would always draw near to You that You would, that our prayers would be Your prayers, that You would help us when we're distressed, that You would humble us when we're proud, Show us the glories of Christ when we're depressed. And so, Lord, in all these things, I pray for Rock Valley Bible Church that we'd be a praying church, praying every moment of every day, having constant communion with you as we draw near. I pray that we might not lose sight of the fact that Jesus is a priest. And he's a priest, he's not a hard priest. He's the most loving, gracious, gentle, kind priest. He's, he's not going to change. He's always going to be the one to whom we can go. Parents will pass away. Friends will dissolve. Our friendships will, but you never will. And you're the friend that sticks closer than a brother. You're the one that's always there. And I pray you'd teach us how to, how to draw near to you, that you might be gracious to us and give us a joy. That we'd have a unity among one another. That we would share the glories of the gospel, the happiness and joy we found in Jesus. Help us these things, Lord, I pray. And keep us for another week in your name. Amen. Well, I pray these things might uh, just stir your heart to him. Andy's got an announcement. He'll close the service for us this morning. No, our Mother's Day is not uh, far around the corner here. And as is our tradition every year, we, our potluck theme for the month of May is men cooking breakfast. Now, I know sometimes that may not be a good thing, you know, for some men who don't know how to flip a pancake or get an egg right or whatever. But, you know, it's done in love and uh, the women are very gracious in receiving the food we make for them. Always happy, always complimenting. And everything. Now maybe that's since last year, so we start since we started doing the omelets. So, anyway. <laughs>
Those of you who have a specialty item, you need to come and tell me what it is so I can make sure I get it listed down here. It's going to be the first Sunday of May. That's May 2nd. Now, unfortunately, I am not going to be here. I am going to be in Michigan on a business trip. Adrian and I are actually leaving for three weeks. We're going to miss you folks and appreciate your prayers uh, while we're gone. But um, plenty of good folk to take it up and run it. Chad is going to coordinate it that day. So some of you have already seen, given you your assignments, you know what you're bringing. The rest of you, the rest of you, okay, I'm pretty loud. I don't know if I need that thing. But the rest of you need to come see me if you're going to be here for sure so you can know what items that we'll have you bring. And then we'll try to do our best to make sure you have an assignment that you're, uh, you're capable of doing. Um, somebody said to me, you've got to be kidding. I, you know, I can't make anything. And I said, well, you know, I think you can pour drinks. You know, that probably will come out okay. So, you know, or, or maybe you can go take orders. Uh, all my, all, our, our, all my guys extraordinary.